Um, well, um, thank you, Bryony, and uh, thank you to all the UCL team uh, and the wider Annie Albers team um, for making a wonderful event and being kind enough to allow me to participate um, as a 19th century... Um, uh, yeah, I, wait, I'm going to get adjusted. Small incremental steps... Um, <laughs> yeah, and this is for, for uh, moving on. So my subject is a 19th century one. Um, it's the hand-woven pictorial tapestries uh, made by Morris and Co. Um, and we should bear in mind that Morris and Co. also made um, uh, woven furnishing cloth. The making of the tapestries was not mechanised in the way that the weaving of the furnishing cloth with its jacquard systems was. Uh, prior to 1877, the wool and silk woven cloths uh, for furnishing were all made by contracting out to manufacturers, where the lifting of the warp threads and the throwing of the shuttle was powered by steam. Um, from 1881, uh, at Morris & Co's Merton Abbey Works, um, the uh, machines were then uh, installed, not steam-powered. Uh, there was water power within the mills. Um, and all the woven cloths for upholstery and curtains and so on uh, were made there with jacquard systems in um, the Merton Abbey weaving sheds. Um, those, they, they did have the punched cards of jacquard weaving which governed the mechanical raising and lowering should I lower this? is it that? should we try this? you'll get my heartbeat in a minute um, <laughs> um, uh, governed the mechanical raising and lowering of the warp to achieve the pattern. Tapestry weaving was undertaken in quite a different way by Morris & Co. Uh, Morris preferred the hood lease or high warp method of weaving that allowed the operative to interpret the design to some extent as the tapestry was being made. This is the training loom used um, at Morrison Co. Rather than using a horizontal loom and working from the front, exactly matching the visual data of the pattern as encountered row by row, the weaver used a vertical loom as employed in the Gobelin manufactory in Paris. In the low warp method, the weaver was slavishly copying a pattern, according to Morris. In the high warp system, this one, particularly 
since the designs for the weavers were produced with minimal colour in Morris and Co. and minimal detail, the weavers were undertaking what Morris called really freehand work. The weaver sat behind the loom at the reverse side of the fabric, looking through the threads to a mirror which reflected the front face. In addition, the lines of the design were drawn as a guide on the warp threads in ink or pencil. The areas of weaving that are finished are visible to the weaver in a mirror set up at the front of the loom. This uh, photograph of Percy Sheldrake is uh, rather um, deceptive in some ways because it shows him at the front correcting the weaving after it's been done with the pressing down needle. Um, uh, however, it does show, uh, when you compare it with the illustrations of the Gobelin um, uh, Equipment that Morris studied, how close the Morris and Co. system was to that used at the Gobelin. In the two views there of the Gobelin works, we see, first of all, um, the view from behind um, the tapestry where the maker sits, and then we see the patrons or viewers of the tapestry in front of a part completed weaving. The head of the weaver can be seen peeping through. Um, from the back, and I hope that you're going to you're going to be able to see that. Um, I'm going to point it out because I think it's. No, I probably can't. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, look hard. Um, I think it's important to what I want to go on to say. Okay, the tapestry is mounted on rollers so that as one portion is completed, it can be wound onto the bottom roller. The design is woven across the width of the narrowest dimension with, in the case of Morris and Co., two or three boys doing the weaving, as many as can comfortably sit across a warp, according to Morris. Trained personnel, such as the boys taken on by the Merton Abbey Works, can complete a large pictorial tapestry for a grand room in about two years. Topological aspects of weaving are referenced by William Morris in his tapestries. The direction of movement of the threads of the shuttle and the weaver's hand and the location of the image, stuff and maker are referenced in relation to the topoi of familiar and unfamiliar modes of existence, existent and non-existent worlds, to the movements of social transformation and nature's morphologies. My aim today is to explore ways in which these themes, as meditations on the process of weaving, offer accounts of weaving's access to utopia. In an article that I published in 2013, I've written in some detail on uh, the tapestry designed by Morris and made at Merton in 1885, the woodpecker. My argument there was that the motif of a woodpecker who was once a king named Picus, as Ovid's account of metamorphosis recounts, the tapestry gives us a woodpecker who is subject to de-evolution. 
disoriented by Circe's enfolding fogs and acted upon by her magic, the king is driven into animal form. He's driven from the upper realm of epic historical action and Circe's action with its results. I want a king and chief, as the verse says, to the alternate time frame of organic pre-social being, a zone of the continuum signalled by part of the verse at the bottom of the tapestry, ever twixt trunk and leaf. Driven down the Darwinian tree of life, the protagonist takes the form of a bird who is nonetheless exceptional for adaptive modifications, giving survival advantage. The woodpecker is a star of the Darwinian um, uh, process of evolution. In The Origin of Species of 1859, the woodpecker is picked out for the specialist barbed tongue that it possesses, having the ability to unfurl it from within the cavity of the head and shoot it out 10 centimetres or more beyond the beak. And it was a star also of Darwin's The Descent of Man of 1871 for changes produced not by natural selection but sexual selection, the aesthetic department of evolutionary mechanism where the power to signal pleasingly to the opposite sex is what is understood to produce change. The woodpecker has the ability to make instrumental music by hammering on hollow wood and has changed its plumage to brilliant colours in the process of sexual selection. My argument is that Morris, with this rendering of Picus, referenced a deliberate choice to move from the ruling class zone of fine art down a hierarchical ladder to the artisanal decorative arts, but at the same time emphasised an upward-reaching dynamic based on natural principles of growth, fruitfulness and evolutionary morphology. The circumnutation of the honeysuckle in the tapestry frame or uh, in the image um, uh, at the uh, sides of the tapestry and referencing the frame of the tapestry, its helical progress as it winds upwards gives us an inkling of this. I also argue that the mythological associations of the woodpecker are uh, something that shows the way that the locus of organic being, the non-historic durational continuum, is being claimed paradoxically by Morris as the place of prophecy and of maximum potential for the future. The woodpecker is in Norse Celtic and classical mythology, the creature that knows about a special plant that can spring open any lock, and the woodpecker is endowed with the power of prophecy. For Morris, the unlocking of a riddle and the ability to see towards the future have to do with the negotiation of the extremes of scarcity and plenty, of dormant powers and burgeoning life, of political despair and political triumph, weaving itself 
is figured as the place where the responsive probing of shuffle and introduction of weft acts in a way that corresponds to circumnutatory, unstoppable, honeysuckle growth upwards to full agency, or the interposition of the woodpecker's prodigious tongue seeking insects in the gaps of vegetation, or picking the lock to unlock the potential of the future. The weaving's face is the place where colour can shine forth, where fruit can glow. The weaving's verso is where the dark place of deprivation, winter or dormancy may be. The tapestry proposes that weaving itself can be the way to envisage and explore utopia. For all the fascination of the texts, we would be better thinking about the object, the woodpecker or Pomona, than to read Morris's writings for the Commonwealth, the Commonweal, including his acute 1889 critique of Edward Bellamy's programmatic utopia, Looking Backward, and the crafted works serve us better than Morris's own utopian novel, News from Nowhere, of 1890. I want to ask to what extent the topoi explored by Morris in this particular crafted object can be compared to the topoi identified by Ernst Bloch in his publication on Utopia, The Principle of Hope, which came out in three volumes, 1954, 55 and 59. The juxtaposition is brought about by the attempt by both thinkers to develop a socialist version of utopian thinking that countered a mechanistic or programmatic model of science or politics. The materialist, vitalistic strain apparent in both bodies of work is combined with an investment in art and creativity, not just as a source of delight, but as a force to counter futile political moves or reactionary tendencies. My reading owes something to the re-reading of Bloch by Louis Marin in Utopics, uh, his book Utopics of 1984. To me, a somewhat baffling book, uh, but from which I can extract one or two points that resonate uh, with my investigation of Morris. Marin observes, as others have done, that utopia is both no place and a good place. Governed by a gaping omega in utopia, spelt O-U-topia, no place. Uh, Or else cut through by the line of the epsilon in utopia, E-U-topia, good place. This leads me to think that perhaps the thread of the weaving offers that infinitesimal quantity that exceeds the measurable and repetitive actual now, and without which the now is inescapable. 
according to Bloch. The aperture of the frame, or even the opening between the warps, is a gaping omega that can only be pushed to the beyond by the minute extra quantity, which is the thread of the epsilon. Marin's shift from any account of utopia to an emphasis on utopic practices, wherein spatial play negotiates the contradictions of discursive form, encourages me to recognise that Morris is offering an account of weaving as utopic practice. So rather than showing us a utopia in his tapestries, he's showing us weaving as utopic practice. Bloch would agree that only in the dynamic open-endedness of practice, such as artistic practice, can any valuable form of utopia be glimpsed. So what are the topoi that take us from Morris to Bloch? I'll propose just four. The swirling formation, the circle, the vertical plane, and the fissure. The swirling acanthus is hyperbolic in the woodpecker. And I've associated its shapes and turns with the clammy, obscuring folks of Circe, the giganticism of primal forms, and the quality of unconscious mind. This kind of movement and the spatial figure it describes is identified in Bloch with the unconscious as a generative locus of imagination and progressive thinking. Daydreams that can circulate in the unconscious mind have a potential value for utopian thinking, he says. They would be valueless, he asserts, if left merely as daydreams, just as wishful thinking, having no cognizance of the challenging conditions of the actual. And this is uh, an important part of his critique of many uh, utopian presentations. For him, the openness of mind and of imagination (laughs) is one of the crucial capacities of humankind. He says, this fermenting and effervescing above the consciousness that has become is the first correlate of the imagination, a correlate which, to begin with, is merely inward, in fact, only located within itself. He spatialises this in relation to the human subject by describing it in contrast to the thick stolidity of animals where consciousness and unconsciousness are not truly present. The animal, he says, knows nothing of this kind. Only man, although he is much more awake, wells up utopianly. His existence is less solid, as it were. Although compared with plants and animals, he is much more intensely present. Human existence has nevertheless 
more fermenting being, more dawning material on its upper edge and hem. Something has, as it were, remained hollow here. In fact, a new hollow space has only just developed. Dreams drift in it, and possible things circulate inwardly, which can perhaps never become outward. For Bloch, the openness, the airy weave of the human mind in those portions beyond control of rationality and rule is first and foremost a resource for the creative imagination, without which political vision remains stultified. Morris's Picus has, by Circe's magic, been forced into those swirling regions of the mind. The locus is that of textile itself, viewed in high magnification or from within its own processes. The inward fragments, products of imagination that may perhaps not emerge, will not do so at all if the circle is allowed to be the dominant topos, says Bloch. He criticises the neat circling of the philosophy of the ultimum in Hegel and in Judeo-Christian thought, where the final days circle back to the origin. This, he argues, does not really allow for the novum, for anything genuinely new to appear. Utopian imagination that just rearranges existing features of existence fails to move out of the circle. Similarly, he criticises the zigzag of a kind of unanchored novelty in what he sees in Bergson as an investment in vital energy for its own sake. The geometric form of the zigzag comes under the label of chaos for him. Bloch's preferred model for the presentation of a non-arbitrary, beyond-daydream utopia is the two-sided vertical surface. He discusses how the credibly different real relates to the actual real. Using the image of a two-sided thing, we might say, like a woven textile. It's something with a front and a back, The vision of utopia is there on the front side and it's made concrete, made credible by the continuing linkage to the reverse side which is that of the existing real. He says, and in such a way that this correlate, as it is now becoming possible to say, itself again has two sides, a reverse side as it were, on which the measures of the respectively possible are written, and a front side on which the totem of the finally possible indicates that it is still open. Existing conditions inform the imagining of utopian. The existing conditions teach conduct on the path to the goal, he says. I'd say that the two-sided tapestry in its vertical frame, in the process of being made, is the equivalent of this model for effectively reaching out towards utopia. 
The image world of the motif is nothing without the stern facts of objective existing conditions represented by the back. The world of utopian imagining has its value in refusing to be contained, in reaching up towards the horizon, the upper reaches of the warp. Morris inscribes the doubleness of the two sides in the motif itself, actually on the front, with its upper and lower registers driven to switch positions, radiant and perfect fruit up there with kings and higher orders of being and clammy, disordered acanthus, thwarted, severed stumps down there with utterly vital, freely imagining, demoted and dispossessed. The exchange between zones is, as I want to stress, two-way. The exchange informs us about the process of making, referring eloquently to the from back to front and from front to back movement of the weft. The woodpecker can carry the thread of his tongue in and out of the tree bark and stand as craftsperson as well as being both Circe's despised victim and prodigiously coloured, hyper-aesthetic, utopian instance of a being in and beyond nature. This brings me to the final topos I want to draw from Bloch. That is the topos of the abyss. The utopian is lifeless when the surface is too closely unified, he says. The colours of a shining vision may be glorious, but it's just ideological projection or wishful thinking, unless the viewer can also maintain awareness of the dark reaches of the actual. So along with an idea of a linked front and back, Bloch calls for utopian representation to allow for seeing through the all-too-beautiful breaks into life when the varnish cracks, he says. By now you'll anticipate that I find just such abyssal depths in Morris's tapestry. They lie in the motif, in the intense darkness that's to be found all over the tapestry, but especially in the upper zone, between the brightest fruit at the top. They lie in the chinks, probed, as we're told, by the woodpecker's tongue. They lie in the gaps that are in the makeup of the textile. Morris meditates on all these aspects of Weaving's utopic spaces. His work can perhaps allow us to see utopic space in a multitude of weaving projects. <laughs>